Hello and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. How are you going, DJ? I'm good. I'm seeing some very interesting things going on in the world. Sun is shining, as always. It wasn't shining the other day. It was pretty cloudy. So you can't you can't just say that without knowing that it's shining. <laughs> it was shining at my end of town, so I don't know about you. Although we, I will say we have been experiencing a bit of cold winds lately. Yes, I like it. <laughs> but something that doesn't have any wind at all is the Bennu Astro... Asteroid. Ooh. What do you know about Bennu, DJ? Uh, it's an asteroid that NASA is planning to land on that thing. Well, kind of land, kind of touch down and scoop up some dust. They're not, like, actually going to land there and stay there. They have a device they call a reverse vacuum. It's the, uh, the TAGSAM uh, collector. And this device... There's a video in the uh, in the article linked, but this device touches down on the astro- asteroid and blows. I'm um, I'm guessing compressed air or some other gas blows it into the dust in the um, asteroid and then catches it in a net as it blows off. So what do they hope to find after doing all the vacuuming? Well, I think the main goal is to find out why space is so dusty. No, not at all. So they're looking at this point on the, uh, it's called the Nightingale Crater, which they've analyzed as being a fairly recent, um, fairly recently coming to the surface of the asteroid, which is less a big rock and more a bunch of, um, a bunch of dust and sand and gravel sort of clumped together. So what they're looking for is organic material. Wait, don't organic materials um, survive on planets? I mean, what are they no. going to find in asteroids, though? I mean, you asteroids- don't need life to make an organic material. Like um, recently, we were talking about Venus and the phosphine discovery. Yeah, you don't need life to create phosphine. It's just that the only way to get life- phosphine, the only known way to get phosphine on a gas, well, a rocky planet, is life. But what they want to look for is. These organic um, carbons, possibly uh, asteroids like Bennu could have brought organic carbon and other organics to Earth. The, uh, but it will also help them find out what the asteroid is actually made out of and figure out how the universe formed, or how the solar system formed, really. But don't we already know? I don't, like, don't we already know what asteroids are temporarily made of? They're just dead. Um, they're just like fragments. Um, they're just fragmented rocks from um, planets. Yeah. Well, the fragmented rock that never formed into a planet, mostly because occasional, um, occasionally asteroids are actually parts of a planet, but a lot of them are just bits of random dust and junk that never formed into a planet. So as a um, as a planet is forming in the solar system, it collects all of the uh, dust and asteroids in its region and compresses it together. But in there are places where you can't have a stable planet, like the asteroid belt is subject to extreme forces from Jupiter. So the um, this is the Osiris Rex spacecraft using the TAGSAM collector. It will touch down for 16 seconds on October 21st Australian time. So uh, that will be Wednesday, the day after this episode comes out. (laughs) And it's going to scoop up 60 grams of dust and bring it back. It's going to take another three years to come home, though. Isn't isn't this sort of um, thing been done before, though? I mean, we had this, uh, we had the Ryuga before then. They do mention the Ryugu uh, mission. Yeah. 
There have been attempts. I don't know how many have been successful. With the Ryugu? Uh, with different asteroids. Okay. But there's also different compositions of asteroid. So there's an advantage to collecting samples from a number of different asteroids. And landing a, l- landing an asteroid is pretty tricky. I mean, the Hayabusa one was... How many times they done it? It was, like, a few times? Um, yeah, they bounced off. Yeah, the problem is asteroids have incredibly low v- gravity. So when you fly into a larger body like Earth, you can land where you where you want to land and have a good idea that you're not going to bounce off. In this case, you probably are going to bounce off. And the other thing is, being a conglomeration of dust and rocks, um, or at least at the surface, it's going to be hard to land there without sinking in and getting stuck yeah they're hoping they would they're hoping um amidst of all amidst of all the uh, dust the dust and um other com- other compounds they wish to find like a, a mineral called um proxy py- uh, pyroxene that's the one yeah so previously pyroxene has been mostly found on a larger asteroid called vesta and the scientist involved, uh, Dr. Delagiastina, Delagiastina, I think. Um, they think that the the pyroxene from is going to be from Vesta, and will have just collected on Bennu as they pass nearby. Here's a crazy thought: Do you reckon if this becomes like a big success, do you reckon we can see space mining becoming a big, big thing? Absolutely, like- space mining is going to be one of the Big things. If humans ever want to be an interplanetary society, we need space mining. If we ever want to be interstellar, we need space mining. You need to be able to find an asteroid, pull it in, harvest all of the valuable minerals, and use them. Mm. And there is a boatload of valuable minerals out there. The scary part, the scary part about space mining, like especially if you want to do it off an asteroid and stuff, would be how much work is going to be put in, involved in. Like, I mean, it must cost NASA a lot of money just to get this rocket to the Bennu um, asteroid in itself. Yeah. So obviously, there's no commercially viable ways. That would come out cheaper than mining on Earth at the moment. But uh, there's a really good book I've read recently, uh, Delta V by Daniel Suarez. I'll put a link in the show notes. But the author of that uh, does a whole ton of research. So I didn't expect this to be a book review, but it is a (laughs) bit of a um, book review. So it's kind of like The Martian, but... The characters are astronauts going on a space mining mission. But the the astronaut, uh, the author, uh, Daniel Suarez, really does his research and speaks to um, he speaks to scientists to find out the best way to do things. And the uh, mining in Delta V is very similar to current proposals. So I really recommend the book, actually. Uh, but um, in this case. They they send humans, but I think they're more likely to send robots. In the book, they they have this sort of Elon Musk type guy, and he uh, he's like, "Well, robots aren't ready to do it, so I'm just going to spend like a billion bucks sending humans." <laughs> I'm just looking at some of the articles, and there was one interesting one there saying that mission leaders say that the asteroid has proven to be the perfect place to grab a sample of pristine space dust from the solar system's primordial past. How, the, my question is going to be, how are they going to carb? How, though? Like, how are they going to carbon date that this is from the primordial past? Like, Well, you can't carbon date it. 
Yeah. Carbon dating only works on Earth, and even then it's a little bit iffy for certain ranges, but the organic carbon isotopes that uh, is used in carbon dating, basically, as you live, you take in carbon. Yeah. Once you stop living, you stop taking in carbon, and uh, that means you stop picking up new carbon, uh, carbon-14, I think. So what they can do is take carbon-14, which has a known half-life, and check out the ratio in your body of carbon-14 to the decay products, and they can get an estimate for how long ago you died. You can't do that in space because there's no life there, and there's a ton of other ionizing radiation which is going to mess up your count. So, um, you know, I'm not 100% sure how you date a, uh, a carbonous, carbonaceous chondrite meteor, right? So maybe uh, what about the, um, the theory is that, that seems to be on Wikipedia, the description for carbonaceous chondrite mentions that the volatile organic compounds and water indicate that it hasn't actually been heated significantly. So by looking at the sort of stuff that would escape from the asteroid if it had been heated or gone through a similar sort of weathering process, then uh, you can tell that it must be pretty old. But I'm sure there's other stuff that they know about that is used for dating asteroids. Yeah. I mean, they could try spectro- uh, spectrophotography. As a spectro- um, spectros- maybe. Oh, yeah. Second. Oh, am I saying it right? Spectro... Yeah, spectroscopy. That's okay, so I found an article here um, from psi.edu. Apparently, they can do radioactive age dating, which is similar to carbon dating, but using different isotopes, which also makes sense. So Bennu is so old, it likely has um, has basically none of the original isotopes left. So I bet they'll be able to do a more uh, more accurate measure of the age once they have their hands on the rock. But bringing it back to Earth, what do you have to tell us about tonight, DJ? <laughs> so, um, Alan Moore, um, you, you may remember him from as the creator of such such valuable comic book series like uh, Watchmen, Viva Vendetta, uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and uh, even famous for his uh, Batman book, the Batman, The Killing Joke. Um, I said possibly the reincarnation of Rasputin. <laughs> really? I think of him as like the he's trying to be treebeard. Look at the photos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, treebeard makes him more uh, treebeard's more believable. Why treebeard? No, he just has that gruffy. He has that gruffy tone as well when you hear him talk. But um, yeah, so he's attempting to break into film business, uh, starting. Starting with a show called the Pro- show called the show, and stars Tim Burke and directed by Mitch Jenkins as the fantastical adventure set in Moore's hometown of Northampton, and follows a man's search for a stolen artifact, a journey that leads him to a surreal world of crime and mystery. And he gave a rare interview this week to discuss about the show, and boy, he has a lot of things to say. <laughs> so, um, first up, he's. So first up, Deadline asked about the uh, comics, and uh, he, recently he finished the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen um, comic book series in 2018, and so his views of comics has been very, very interesting. So he quotes by saying, I'm not interested in comics anymore. I don't want anything to do with them. I've been doing comics for 40 years, and when I entered the comic book industry, the big attraction was this was the medium that was vulgar, 
It's been created to entertain the working class people, particularly children. The way the industry has changed, it's graphic novels now. It's entirely priced for an audience of middle class people. I have nothing against middle class people, but it's meant to be a medium for middle class hobbyists. It was meant to be a medium for people who don't have much money. And he he goes on to even say, like, people equate comics to superhero movies that add a new layer of difficulty for me. Um, they have blighted cinema and also blighted the culture to de- and also blighted culture to a degree. Um, some years ago, I said I thought it was a really worrying sign that hundreds and thousands of adults were queuing up to see characters that were created 50 years ago to entertain 12-year-old boys that seem to speak to some kind of longing to escape from the complexities of the modern world and go back to a nostalgic, remembered childhood. That seemed dangerous. It was infantilizing the population. Man, Alan is savage. <laughs> I, it feels like it. I mean, holy. I'm, I'm starting to, th- the way he says it, it does seem like it. Like, everyone is now addicted to a Marvel movie and they're like, wow, I wish I'm like that superhero. <laughs> yeah, everyone's trying to do their own Marvel thing, which is how the uh, the movie industry seems to work. They latch onto something and bleed it dry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's-, he's not the only um, famous person, famous comics person to come up in arms against the uh, Marvel superheroes. Yeah. We oh, had, yeah. uh, what's his name? Connery? Jerry Conway. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Conway. Conway. Yeah. Yeah. Of uh, Punisher having a bit of a whinge about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, n- funny you mentioned about the whole uh, movie stuff. Uh, he says that, uh, not to say that one causes the other, but I think they're both a symptom of the same thing. A denial of reality and an urge for simplistic and sensational solutions. I I, I agree with him. <laughs> I, strangely yeah. enough, I agree with him. Like, like it's becoming to a point where, like, like superhero comics, they're 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 supposed to escape us from reality. Oh, actually, no. Wait, wait. What was I saying? Sorry, scratch that. <laughs> I'm. It's interesting. What um, I was gonna say. Um, superhero comics are meant to be escapism. What co- modern comic book movies are trying to do is they're trying to insert real world stuff into the escapism. It's like it, it's like making more making them very even more depressing. Like uh, when you watch a David Attenborough documentary, like David Attenborough would say, like there are only fifty two, there are only fifty two of these creatures left, and you're like, come on, man, I want to see something positive in the nature world. Why are you, <laughs> why are you, why are you, why are you mentioning this to me? Why are you making hey, me depressed? Here we see the only living member of the Hulk species. <laughs> Doomed to extinction, the Hulk is physically unable to mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, do that in a Steve Irwin accent. Oh, crikey, mate. Look at this. I've got me a Hulk. <laughs> no, why did that go Cockney? <laughs> you see, that's the problem with my voice. <laughs> I sound too British, even if I'm not British. <laughs> uh, oh, man. All right, got, that. got me a Hulk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> So um so the interview go so the interview keeps going so he um deadline asks so you said you feel responsible for how comics have changed and Alan Moore continues on by saying it was largely my work that has attracted a lot an adult audience it was the way that was commercialized by the comics industry there were tons of headlines saying that comics have grown up but other than a couple other than a couple of particular individual comics 
They really hadn't. This happened when the graphic novels in the 1980s, people wanted to carry on reading comics as they always had, and they could now do it in public and feel, and still feel sophisticated because they weren't reading a children's comic. It uh, wasn't seen as subnormal. You don't see the huge advances in adult comics that I was thinking we might have, as witnessed by the endless superhero comics. Man, that that is a really good scr- snapshot when you think about it. Yeah, it sounds like he is absolutely done with the industry. Yeah, oh, oh, and I, I think he has. Uh, I, I think he's. He he even has more more like points, more good points. Like he he's like for example, uh, with the co- with the COVID industry and how it's affecting the comics. He said like, I doubt major companies will come out of the lockdown in any shape at all. The mainstream comic book industry is uh, about eighty years old and has pre existing health conditions. It wasn't looking great that it wasn't looking that great before COVID happened. <laughs> That's a good analogy. And I think I think what he's trying the underlying theme is that commercialization is ruining the comic book industry. Commercialization ruins all art. But if you don't have commercialization, your artists starve. So instead we get kind of alright art that's being affected by commercialization, especially with movies and games getting so big that you need hundreds or thousands of people working on a single item. And when you're dumping that much money into something, you can't afford for it to fail. So you don't make you don't make a risky decision. You make the safest decision decision you can. And if that's another um, Avengers sequel, you're getting another Avengers sequel. Yeah. Although the problem is, though, so like- I like his point that um oh. he makes a point that comics are supposed to be cheap. Which if you can write and publish a comic with just a couple of people, then well, the issue is the distribution, which is why I think webcomics are... I actually think webcomics are better than regular comics because there's no publisher to tell you to do things a particular way. Yeah. It's just one or two friends making a story they want to tell. But the problem is, though, like, it's it's one or two friends, but then you want if you want to get that... Um, you want to get that money to support, your, to support your work, though. Like, you have to ask your fans and, like, yeah. hey, you give us a few cents and stuff. And I mean that's yeah, good. It's not easy. It's not easy, but it's good. At least it's it's not a grift or anything like that. I reckon what what happens is to to most people is that when when companies come in and say like, "Hey, we're going to give you this bucket load of money." I reckon it's more of the the creators become drunk on power kind of thing. That could definitely happen. And um he was and it's interesting uh, earlier on I was talking about escapism. So Deadline asked, and finally, hasn't cinema always been a form of escapism? Moore says this, Sometimes it is. All art forms are potentially, but they can be used for something other than escapism. Think of all the movies that have that have really changed, uh, challenged assumptions, films that have been difficult to take on board, disturbing in their images. Uh, the same goes for literature, but these superhero f- films are, are too often escapism. I can see that changing, and perhaps for the better. It's too early to make uh, op- optimistic predi- predictions, but you might hope that the that the bigger interests will find it more difficult to maneuver in this new landscape, whereas the smaller independent concerns might find their way a bit more uh, a bit more adapted. These times may be an opportunity for genuinely radical and new voices to come to the fore. And I think he's right. Like the indie scene is indie scene is coming up very nicely. I mean, especially in the gaming ter- in, in gaming as well. Like indie comics as like um, 
comics to movies, for example, they're doing well. You had to sw- swing in that plug, didn't you? Well, I've been I, I have been reading their book, uh, their graphic novel lately, and it's pre- it's been good. It's been good. <laughs> but yeah, but the, uh, but coming back to the point, I I think he's right in terms of how superhero movies are becoming not gritty, not like raw emotional. It's just fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. Um, I like it's not like gritty, raw emotional kind of movies anymore. I think it's out there. I think a lot of people just don't see it because the safe stuff is the um, the usual, just the usual Avengers stuff. Yeah. Like the closest thing to a very gritty movie for me, I don't know whether you've seen it, um, Professor, there is a movie called Logan. And it was Hugh Jackman's final um, movie as with the Wolverine, and that was very gritty. It was it was not about escapism. It was just t- – it was challenging – um, the superheroes rolled in in a changing world. It was very difficult for me to to watch that. And like spoiler for those for those who haven't seen it, you must be wow. I don't know why you haven't seen that movie, but uh, at the end of the movie, the it's he, he dies in a very tragic way, and it was very sad to watch. <laughs> well, spoilers. You didn't need to I, say that. I did. <laughs> I did say spoilers. Yeah, but um, it's not only the um, you don't have to go to Marvel comic books to get gritty. There is tons of gritty. You just need to stop watching the Marvel comic books. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, anime and manga would be perfect. Are uh, perfect for that. So I think my, I I, th- if Al- I will agree with Alan Moore on this one that the superhero movies are getting a bit too flashy and there's not enough substance in them and. It's too flowery as well. I agree with Alan on that front. What say you, Professor? I mean, I'll support anyone who says Marvel's too big. <laughs> so our last topic for the night is the Australian Game Developer Awards. So the last week have, has had a virtual game developer conference, uh, Melbourne Games Week, including the uh, announcement of the winners of the Australian Game Developer Awards for this year, including Studio of the Year, League of Geeks, who made Armello. Game of the Year for Moving Out, which is a great little party game about packing your car. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's actually play a game. As, um, yeah. You, well, you play as removalists, <laughs> and you have to throw everything into the truck. Best art went to the game Necro Barista. Best gameplay to Boomerang Foo. Best narrative to Under a Star Called Sun. Best sound to Audio Play Alien Strike. Best music to Write. Best AR slash VR to Shooty Skies, Shooty Skies Overdrive. Best serious game to Kana Quest. Best mobile game to Crossy Road Castle. That's still going. Best ongoing game to World of Tanks. And best emerging game also to Write. Huh. And yet we can't find Devi Boy's game. Uh, nope. Yeah, and there were some honors as well. So what prizes do they get for winning these awards? Uh, I'm not sure. But um, the yeah, the individual awards include the Adam Lanceman Award for Excellence in the Industry, uh, the Rising Star Award for those who have made significant contributions in the past one to five years, and the Game Connect Award. The Game Connect Award is for the individual individuals in the industry who have forged a path for themselves and others in the industry. And the winners of that, uh, the Adam Lanceman Award went to Dr. Jane Turner, who is a lecturer at QUT. We got our university's got a winner. Woo-hoo. Yay. 
No, I, I had her for um a um for a, a couple of units. She's nuts in a fun way. <laughs> As in, like she 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 puts out um, very interesting PowerPoint presentations, or no, she's just a very interesting person. <laughs> um, I she used to run the uh, the symposium, which the symposium that she ran would be the week before the free play festival, and she named it Four Play to Free Play, <laughs> and that didn't last long before she had to shut down the email account. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> But no, it's not just that. She also, um, like, if you're in the the Bachelor of uh, Games and Interactive Entertainment, I really, like, I know her classes tend to be put on at, like, 8 a.m. in the morning, and that's no fun at all, especially when you're traveling from uh, from Ipswich and you have to get up at 5.30 in the morning. But um, they're worth going to because they were a lot of fun, and you learn a lot. Well, so now I've had a um, book review and a lecture review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> next thing uh, you know you'll have a class review the game connect award went to ella mcintyre whose name i don't recognize i'll just pull her up and see yeah so she um works at mighty kingdom and she's the director of mobile overseeing partnerships licensing and original ip development oh. rising stars went to meredith hall and jared farquhar nicole now, Meredith Hall looks like um, looks like she's an advocate for diversity and inclusiveness. And uh, Jared Jared Farquhar Nicole is community manager at Game Plus. So um, got a, a good spread of people there. Yeah, I'm looking at Meredith Hall's um, website. So yeah, she's currently working at Film Victoria. Yeah, she supports games industry locally and internationally, working on strategy, forward planning, research, growth areas, and more t- more through programs and direct engagement with the sector. Wow, I'll put the website. I'll put her website on the thing. Yep, and we'll include a link to Jared Farquhar Nicole's uh, Game Plus which is a co-working space for game developers. What's going to be, I mean, it's cool to see all these um, game awards. What's going to be interesting is how many of these award-winning stuff, the staff members behind them are going to stay behind or are they going to get poached? No, I think um, game developers tend to, uh, in the indie scene at least, they tend to sort of stick together until the thing shuts down. Then you get the the bigger indies like Halfbrick, like, the thing is, we're also seeing a bit of a blurring of the lines between anything that isn't AAA and indie. Mm. Um, I like how there's a best to serious game. Like, what's uh best serious game? What is it like? Is going to be like Surgeon Simulator? Like, oh my god, it's so no, serious. That's not serious at all. <laughs> now, Kana Quest is a puzzle game about learning hiragana. Oh wait, then why just call it a best serious game? You can just call it best educational that's, game. That's, that's what a serious game is. <laughs> I could just re- you should just reword it with best educational game. No, we call it a serious game because educational games are for kids. <laughs> I assume is the reason because whenever <laughs> you hear about an educational game, it's always some kids game like Math Blaster. But a serious game that's not just this puzzle game about. Hiragana. It's also games that teach you about jobs. So you could be a mechanic and use a VR simulation to learn how to repair a car. Okay, here we go. 
So I've, I've got the definition here. So what is a serious game? A serious game is a game which primary objective is not fun or entertainment, rather learning or practicing a skill. It has grown particularly in such sectors as education, defense, aeronautics, science, or health. Okay. Hmm. And to be clear, um, the KFC dating simulator is not a serious game. <laughs> <laughs> but what I have heard is that uh, KFC does use VR to train their staff. No, no way. That that's I bet that's a that sounds like a bold-faced lie. No, it's um a real thing. They actually released it for uh, the public. Yeah, I get the whole da- dating sim pie, but no, I, I don't believe the whole like um employees use that dating sim to teach the Not stuff. Not the dating sim. They use a VR training game. Oh, right, right. Oh, what? Yeah, so they created this thing, which is this weird little VR escape room, and <laughs> added, um, like, they claim that they use it as part of their training program. <laughs> what is it like? The fr- oh, you got to escape this room before this before this place gets um, doused in, in hot frying no, oil? <laughs> you're just locked in until you figure out how to cook chicken. <laughs> I mean, it's a good way to teach. It's a, it's a, it's a good, safe, hands-on way to teach people. Yeah, and that's on the fairly sort of the gaming side of serious games. You can get even more serious. So there's um, a game being used. Well, at least it was years and years ago now. But there was a game. I don't remember the title, but it was used to train um, like paramedics and disaster response teams. So you'd have a simulated disaster and you'd have to triage and treat all of the patients. And the goal was to teach them the importance of triage because you, um, you know, you get your patient in and you go and check out a stubbed toe. Meanwhile, someone's choking to death on the other side of the room. Mm. That's a bad thing. There, there is- actually, you might remember, did we discuss Endeavor RX, the, vaguely- uh, the video game for ADHD? Vaguely familiar. Vaguely. I think we did. Yeah. So um, it's a, an app. A, a gamified app to help people with ADHD do their therapy. We did talk about in, Endeavor RX. There we go. Yeah, that was being um, greenlit. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did. Okay. Yep, I remember, yeah. Yeah. So Which, yeah I'll, I'll, oh, uh, I was going to say, uh, so the game we were talking about training the paramedics, was it called Zero Hour? America's Medic? Maybe. Um, no, that's too new. Okay. But that is an example of what I was talking about. But with the awards, so my, my biggest fear when it comes to indie games is they always, um, like, after they win an award, they just they go into relative obscurity and we don't even hear anything about them. Like, yeah, like it's hard half- to strike lightning twice. Yeah, unless if you're half brick or blue f- or blue tongue. Yeah, they're so smart in that um, they take on other projects at half brick to fund things. So Halfbrick got their start as a um, making licensed games. It wasn't until later on that they started making their own original work, including the game that broke Halfbrick. So <laughs> there's a famous story from the guys there that they once had a, a paper prototype for a game and they were running it on a, a whiteboard in one of the meeting rooms and nobody got anything done because they were too busy strategize, strategizing the game. <laughs> oh, man. So you're going to try any of the award-winning games or 
Um, I'm thinking of checking out Under a Star Called Sun. Uh, let's see. Moving Out is one I'm definitely going to bring up again. Um, I've played a little bit of it at a, at a games night, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. So we'll just take a short ad break now, and we'll be back with the shout-outs and events of interest. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. So on the 12th of October, 1999... We had the day of six billion. The sixth billionth living human was born. And we then crossed seven billion uh, in 2011. Adnan Mevic from Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina is symbolically the sixth billionth currently alive person on Earth and was chosen by the United Nations Population Fund. He was born on the designated day two minutes after midnight. And on the 12th of October, it was the 10th anniversary of the uh, rather mediocre Medal of Honor reboot. That was such a bad game. Yeah. And now they're rebooting it again, I think. Oh, no. Yeah. And on the the same day, it was the 30th anniversary of RoboCop 2, featuring uh, RoboCop going to war against a secretly created evil RoboCop. <laughs> Which just sounds like Terminator 2 with extra steps to me. <laughs> For our remembrances, on the 12th of October 1914, we have Margaret Eloise Knight. Sorry, Eloise Knight. She was an American inventor, notably for the flat-bottomed paper bag. One of those things you, you don't really think it had to be invented. She founded the Eastern Paper Bag Company in 1870, creating the flat-bottomed paper bags. In 1868, she'd created a folding machine that would fold and glue paper. Unfortunately, her design was stolen and patented by Charles Annan. She filed a patent interference lawsuit and was awarded the patent in 1871. She also invented lid-removing pliers, very useful, a numbering machine, a window frame and sash, and several devices related to rotary engines. She was the first woman awarded a U.S. patent and held 87 U.S. patents. Uh, sorry, Plark says that she was the first woman awarded a U.S. patent, but either Mary Keyes or Hannah Slater actually received the first one. Margaret died of uh, pneumonia at 76 in Framingham, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. <laughs> My tongue does not like that word right now. <laughs> Massachusetts. <laughs> this reminds me of when you when you tried to pronounce Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro. All right. Sometimes my tongue has a mind of its own and it stops <laughs> wanting to speak. <laughs> On the 12th of October, 1965, Paul Hermann Mueller a Swiss chemist who received the 1948 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovering the insecticidal qualities of DDT, which could be used to control malaria and yellow fever. Now, unfortunately, you know, great research finding out that uh, insects are affected differently to mammals. 
which means DDT is effectively harmless to humans as far as I'm aware. Unfortunately, it's uh, not, well, not great for bird eggs. <laughs> Although um, DDT was first discovered in 1874, it wasn't until Mueller had a look at it that he realized it was an insecticide. Although, here's a question for you. Which is more dangerous to the environment, CFCs or DDT? Uh, I think CFCs would have the greatest effect on multiple species because the DDT only kills bugs, which is not great. Bugs are important. And birds accidentally. Uh, Well, it doesn't kill the birds. It fins their eggs. And... Actually, the Wikipedia page has um, DDT isn't great for humans either. Yeah. But it has been great at stopping, you know, malaria from spreading. And without DDT, lots of people would probably die of malaria instead. It's one of those trade-offs. But I think CFCs would be worse because the CFC would um, destroy the ozone, which would allow any creature to get cancer from the UV. So Paul died of illness at 66 in Basel. And on the 12th of October 1996, René Lacoste died. Jean-René Lacoste was a French tennis player. He was named the Crocodile because of how he dealt with his opponents. I'm not sure how you do a death roll while playing tennis. <laughs> Easy. Just uh, when, when you beat when you beat your opponent, you go to him and shake his hand. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> twirl around, <laughs> twirl around, uh, 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 twirl around, and uh, trap him in the net and just beat the beat the just hell out of him. Just reach and take a nice big chunk out of his bicep. Yeah, <laughs> and beat the hell out of him with a tennis racket. <laughs> In 1933, Lacoste founded La Société Camise Lacoste with André Gillia. They produced the polo shirt, which uh, Lacoste wore when he was playing. It included a crocodile embroidered on the chest. In 1961, Lacoste also invented the first tubular steel tennis racket. Can you imagine breaking one of those things? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's probably harder to break a steel tennis racket than a wooden one, which that's a good point. How do they break the tennis rackets? If Do they not use steel ones anymore? I would assume I think, they would because steel is a, uh, well, steel gives you greater force. I think it's more graphite now, if I recall. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but my favorite incident to highlight the whole um, tennis rackets. Not graphite, it, but carbon fiber. Yeah. My favorite one would be uh, in Australian Open, there was a tennis player by the name of Marcus Bagdadis. And oh, he was, he, he had a stunt, he pulled off a stunt where he smashed like five or six tennis rackets. I'm, I'm, and I'm like, what the hell, man? Yeah. <laughs> tennis players are known for having a bit of a tantrum. <laughs> Yeah, he smashes four tennis rackets at one go. This was in 2012, by the way, guys, so... <laughs> we also have, for the birthdays on the 12th of October, 1860, Elmer Ambrose Berry, an American inventor and entrepreneur, famous for construction. Uh, sorry, most famous for the construction, two years after Herman Anschutz Kempf of the Gyro Compass and founder of the Sperry Gyroscope Company. He was known as the father of modern navigation technology. His uh, gyroscopic compasses are really cool. Mm-hmm. And they're hugely important for flying because you have all these weird forces going on when you're flying. Actually, they'd be useful for ships as well. In 1887, Sperry created a system to bring electricity into coal mines heating copper wires to prevent corrosion. Then in 1900, he established an electrochemical lab where he and his associate developed a process for making pure caustic soda and recovering tin from scrap metal. 
He attempted to create a large gyroscopically stabilized ship to prevent seasickness. And uh, 15 years later, with his son Lawrence Burstberry, created the gyro, which could control the elevators and ailerons of an aircraft through a series of servos. In 1916, he worked with Peter Hewitt to create the Hewitt-Sperry Automatic Airplane, one of the precursors to the UAV. I believe the first ever um, sort of UAV, well, the name drone comes from a tiger moth called Queen Bee, I think. I'm just going to fact check that. <laughs> yes. So the name drone comes from the uh, tiger moth Queen Bee as a bit of a play on bees. <laughs> this was a, um, the Queen Bee wasn't flown unmanned until 1935, though. The, um, I assume the Hewitt-Sperry automatic airplane came slightly before that. On the 12th of October, 1921, Arthur Cloakey, as Art, a pioneer in the popularization of stop-motion claymation. He's best known as the creator of the character Gumby and the original voice of Gumby's sidekick, Pokey. They first appeared in the show, The Howdy Doody Show, and later got their own series, The Adventures of Gumby. He also produced uh, experimental and visually inventive claymation films for adults, including Gumbasia, Mandela, as a, which Mandela was a cloak, described by Cloakey as a metaphor for evolving human con- consciousness, and the Clay Peacock, an elaboration on the animated MBC logo. That's a uh, bit of an interesting body of work. And on the 12th of October, 1931, we have Ole Johan Dahl. He was a Norwegian computer scientist and one of the fathers of similar and object-oriented programming with Kristen Nygaard. With Kristen, he produced the initial ideas for object-oriented programming, which most modern programming is based on. He developed the Simula 1 and Simula 67 languages. The team was the first to develop class, subclass, inheritance, dynamic object creation, and a whole bunch of other object-oriented paradigms. And for the events of interest, on the 12th of October, 1810, the citizens of Munich held the first Oktoberfest. So... Kronprinz Ludwig, later King Ludwig I, married Princess Therese of Saxe-Hildberghausen on the 12th of October 1810. The citizens of Munich were invited to attend the festivities held in front of the city gates to celebrate the event. The fields were named Therese's, uh, Theresenwies, which is Therese's Meadow, in honour of the Crown Princess and have kept the name ever since. The event included horse races. The precise origin of the festival and horse races is a matter of controversy, but they repeated in 1811, launching the new, the uh, now annual Oktoberfest tradition, which, uh, if you're not in Germany, is a good excuse to get drunk, apparently. <laughs> well, that's it. Well, back then it was what now now that now we can safely say weddings are a good excuse to get drunk. They always have been. Like this isn't the first time someone got drunk at a wedding. (laughs) It's in the bloody Bible. (laughs) Like, if it's in the Bible, that means people have been getting drunk at weddings for a really bloody long time. (laughs) I'm sure it would be in Gilgamesh if you wanted to look. (laughs) Like, I really doubt someone's written a thesis on the first time someone got drunk at a wedding in literature though. Oh, that would be that'd be an interesting thesis paper if that actually happened. On the 12th of October 2004, the film A Message from Outer Space released in uh, Belgium. The film uh, has the plot, Fritz, a lonely, unworldly astronomer, is in pursuit of extraterrestrial life in order to find true friendship, which he does not find on Earth. When one day an egg fill, falls on his head, his lonely existence fills up with hope. Convinced of the fact that there is an 
extraterrestrial creature inside this egg, he decides to incubate it. <laughs> which sounds surprisingly wholesome for the kind of um, weird movies we talk about. I want to bet that the ending would have been, it was all... Aliens. A, I was going to say, it was all a dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was in a coma all this time. I mean, I'd have an alien friend, but I don't go outside, so it would never actually land on me. <laughs> And finally, on the 12th of October 2005, the second Chinese human spaceship, Shenzhou 6, launched, carrying two cosmonauts for five days. And they had better computers than we did. Yeah, they were absolutely up there so they could get better ping to hack. <laughs> wonder how, I wonder if they got better um, after when they came back, though. Who knows? <laughs> But um, yeah, this is the interesting part. Um, because China and Russia launch from the desert, basically, internal deserts, they don't launch over the ocean like America tries to do. And launching over the ocean means that anything goes wrong, you're not going to hit anyone, probably. But there's, um, there's photos of these like poor country people finding just big chunks of rocket in their field. <laughs> and that's not good for you because big chunks of rocket tend to be covered in lovely stuff like rocket fuel oh uh, and radiation yes occasionally radiation all right well we nearly forgot to do the uh, the games we played section so what did you play dj i have been playing shotgun farmers and yes don't let don't let the name fool you it is a fun fun game what's it about uh, it's a multi-multiplayer on- online shooter and the cool thing about it is you get to pull guns out of the ground. So you find guns growing, grab them and kill people. Yep. In a, in a way, yep. <laughs> I mean, it's fun. And, and, and like, it's it's simple. It's fun. And um, it's it's not, there's no, no overcomplicated stuff you have to do as well. Okay. So yeah, there's no, um, no reloading. And if you miss, the bullet grows a gun. Yeah. So that's um, and uh, and also and the weapons. I like that all... the guns look like veggies. Yep, <laughs> like you got the corn rifle, the rocket launcher, or carrots. The chilies are flamethrowers. That's pretty good. Like it, it's it, it's made by Mega Storm Games, and yeah, I mean, it's okay. Sim- it's How many simple. points do you give it? I would give this one four out of five. It's a it's a fun game. My biggest gripe with this game is the um it is the uh what's the what's my biggest gripe? I forgot all about it now. Okay then. Uh, it, it, uh, the only problem is it's not many people are playing. Keep playing this game. Yeah, it's a fun game. Seems to be a problem for a lot of shooters. Mm. I've been playing Think of the Children, which um, I did cover a while back. Got up to the the last mission, which seems to get a bit buggy and have um, some performance issues, but it is a lot of fun. So the goal is that you and your fellow parents have to keep your children safe. Your children are just like real life children and are busy trying to get themselves killed. (laughs) <laughs> so like there's a level where you go to the park you got to stop them drowning you got to stop them running onto the road and you got to set up um the picnic while you're doing that and uh there's some fun twists and turns in the uh the story and the setting it's a good party game so have they fixed the biggest flaws in, in the last we spoke about this game uh can you refresh my memory i think you were saying that uh the graphics could kind of uh the level design's the same. It feels like uh, re- repetitive. Um, no, I. They feel fairly unique. The first few are a bit repetitive, but later levels add other gimmicks and tricks to make every level feels pretty different by the end of the game. 
So I'd give it, I think, four out of five. But that's all we have for today. So where can they find us, DJ? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, iTunes. We have an archive of our old episodes at thatsnotcanon.com where they can also find new podcasts as well, such as Dark Marks, which talks about uh, wrestling, horror, subculture, comics, underground music, and all things dark and fan dark and fancy they can also find us on pod hero yes on pod hero for five dollars a week you can support us sorry five dollars a month you can support us with your subscription being split among the podcasts that you listen to but that's all we have for this week so look after yourself stay hydrated see you next time hey that's my line now i've got to do the euro Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.